The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport, music and business to deconstruct the ethos of world-class performers to create growth and optimise business. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to Dave Gleeson, lead singer of Australian rock band The Screaming Jets. Through resilience and perseverance, Dave's worked hard to evolve The Screaming Jets from being a local rock band to being musical legends, known and loved throughout Australia. Building Resilience Podcast. Dave Gleeson, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Great to be here, mate. Thanks. What I wanted to start with uh, with Dave was really around um, the Screaming Jets were a huge success here in Australia. But I want to go back to uh, when you're uh, kicking around the streets of Newcastle. What did that look like and how did you go from that with your mates into... Uh, in the career in a rock band? Mate, it was, uh, growing up in Newcastle, it was all about uh, footy and surfing for me. Um, the footy, I, was, I stopped playing rugby league when I was about 12. I had a neck accident uh, injury. Then I became a referee till I was about 17. Um, so yeah, I was still involved in footy, but not the good part. Yeah, and, and just through mates at school, um, asked me if I wanted to come and have a sing in their band that hadn't even done a gig. We were just uh, rehearsing in a mate's, uh, in one of the guy's lounge rooms or parents' lounge room. And um, it, it just all fell into place. I don't know. I, by the time I left school, I was 18. Um, worked a bit of part-time stuff with a, a mate of mine who was a roofer. Um, and all that time, I was doing three, four, five gigs a week. And yeah, that was... That led up to um, 1988 when uh, when my first band stopped, and then I think that's when we kind of got together a group of guys and said, "Look, let's have a real crack at this. Let's not just be like a a Newcastle band. Let's see what we can do as far as writing our own songs, creating our own music, and getting to the rest of the world." But what was it in you? Do you think that uh, that kind of led you to do that? Because like you see, you had other jobs. A lot of people who can sing well and, and doing a bit of roofing, carry on just doing a bit of roofing. They don't go into the uh, the other side of it. So what do you think's in you that made you want to kind of push for uh, push for that stardom and create something a bit special? Um, look, I always felt like the um, <laughs> the uh, unheard voice in my family. I've got like uh, three brothers and four uh, three brothers and four sisters. So I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, <laughs> I think, about you know, uh, wanting to be heard. Uh, I, and that that kind of selfish thing of um, the adulation, people started yelling and screaming and um, and and fearing, and suddenly I kind of felt myself addicted to that kind of lifestyle. And I got to say, it's a good lifestyle. You don't get up at any set time, and uh, you kind of stay up all night. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of partying went on, and it was kind of just yeah, I was just drawn to it because. Because of all those kind of um, those uh, I don't know hedonistic <laughs> things of life yeah, that come with being in a rock band. 
Oh, there's a lot to be said about uh, about uh, those those type of drivers, right? And uh, <laughs> a lot of successful people who've been dining out on hed- hedonism for a long time, and uh, long may it continue for many. And <laughs> from a musical perspective, um, were you self-taught? Did you have any mentors? What did that look like? Uh, well, I did uh, uh, through school. I'm, I'm Catholic, so I had um, choir. I was in um, uh, the choir at uh, my primary school and had some great mentoring there from uh, Mrs. Evans, God rest her soul. she be long gone by now. And then when I got to uh, high school, there wasn't much of a chance to do music until I got to year 11 and 12. Uh, but once that uh, opportunity came up, I kind of um, was able to do my major in music as performance. So I never kind of... Uh, uh, formally learnt kind of instruments or anything like that, but I certainly uh, learnt some of the tricks of the trade with singing, and um, yeah, so kind of that that was kind of where my uh, mentorship and 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 learning came from. Um, but uh, we had a guy called Greg Bryce uh, in Newcastle, who still plays to this day. But uh, he was in a band that was kind of successful in Newcastle. And, uh, he took us under his wing a little bit and showed us the ropes a bit. So, yeah, it was mostly supporting other acts uh, and supporting and competing with other acts. That was the, the two main things that were the drivers. Yeah, so you were really wanting to, uh, to get, a, get, ahead of, get ahead of the uh, the other guys out there, right, to, uh, to, get, yeah. to get to that level. It's always good to have that competition and uh, the bit between your teeth. Obviously, it's, um, it's, it's fairly grueling on the body um, and... Uh, uh, kind of a lot of touring, and whilst it's a, it's a lot of fun, but you've also got to maintain relevance, right? And you maintain relevance through um, through writing new songs. Was there anything that you did, or any kind of rituals, or any um, anything that was specific to you that got you into that kind of creative more mode or into that flow state? Well, I um, I, I subscribe to the uh, the Johnny Lydon "Anger Is an Energy" uh, type of um, school. So for me, I wrote a lot of poetry. Um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't putting it to music. I was just writing thoughts down. Usually, um, pissed off with things that had happened or or the situation I found myself in, um, and that was probably the 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 turning point for collaboration when I was able to um, sit with the guys and take out my poetry, and they'd like have a riff, or we'd be able to work on the song together. Because I yeah, I found it hard to bring it. Um, uh, all on my own. There are uh, Grant Wormsley and Paul Wazine who are uh, who were the main songwriters in the Jets. Um, they would often come in with totally finished stuff. You know, they had the arrangement and the chords and all the progressions and stuff. Whereas I had to collaborate with people, which um, they kind of helped me a bit because then I was able to kind of shape my words to fit their music rather than. Uh, Rather than you know them coming in, here's a piece of music, show me some words. So it was like it was uh, always a different approach. Uh, sometimes we wrote um, as a as a four or five of us, uh, but more often than not, the big hits um, came from someone just coming in. Grant, I remember walked in with Better, and which was you know one of our biggest songs, and said, uh, "What do you think of this?" And we all went, "Oh yeah, good on you," um, and it became you know a massive hit. Paul Wazine as well, um, and and the, but once once they do that, then the collaborative effort of everyone sitting around saying, "I think that there should be a lead break here," or 
Uh, that verse goes too long. That's where that kind of all started to take shape. And then over the years, it's kind of, yeah, that, that we, we've we never really had that kind of let's sit down and we'll write all these songs together. Like a lot of bands seem to have that discipline. It's kind of always been drawing from different, uh, different songbooks. And obviously doing a lot of touring together and, and kind of having that creative spirit and working together as a team in order to create create this music. Um, was there anything when you look back that defined the friendships that you had uh, within the uh, within the band and kind of that mateship? Because it is that really kind of a true sense of the word, right? It's, uh, people don't get on perfectly all the time, um, especially when you're, I know what it's like when you go on holiday with your mates and as you're traveling around Australia and the world, kind of doing doing that, there must have been some um, must have been some tricky times between some pals. But what was the kind of general uh, general operating system that you guys created together to to get along? Well, we operated as a gang. Um, we were there was us against the world. Um, I remember our first manager in, in our first band. He used to say, "You need to be well drilled like an army outfit," you know, and he. He used to drill that into us, and and that's why, like, we'd get to shows and we'd set up the PA and, um, you know, run all the leads and do all the lights and all that type of stuff. Um, and it, it kind of that kind of contributed to knowing what the whole process of the show was. Um, so by the time we got to the Jets, um, we hired crew because there was more money coming in, but we knew what was involved and we knew uh, the work that it took to get the show on the road. But yeah, we went down to to Sydney and from Newcastle, and we really traded on the fact that even at that time in the in the late eighties, early nineties, people would say, "Where are you from?" And we'd go Newcastle, and they'd kind of take a step back. <laughs> we loved that uh, for the first uh, for the first few meetings in Sydney with record companies and stuff. I wasn't able to make it, so our manager was like, um, "Oh, you don't want David the meeting? No, 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 no. He's uh, he's." Well, I don't know, you just don't want him at the meeting. So there was this mythology that we created around ourselves that we were like these wild guys from Newcastle. Um and everywhere we went we kind of we were like a gang for the first uh for the first few years because we, we just caught, toured and played uh, constantly and we were caught up in quite a whirlwind of uh at the start where there was a bidding war and then we had to get straight into the studio and while we we're in the studio we were still playing gigs and it just those type of things kind of cemented um, our commitment to each other. Uh, we kind of and and to the band especially. I mean, it was it was only um, two years till we lost our first member. Um, he kind of fell out and left the band. But um, yeah, we kept rolling on, and that was because we kind of had that at, at work ethic already. Picked up another drummer. He wasn't the right guy, but we had shows to do, so we did those shows in Europe. Actually, I think the biggest show we ever did in Europe, we did with a drummer who was uh, who'd been with us for about two bloody weeks, <laughs> and it wasn't great. Um, but yeah, just that gang mentality. We're like a footy team, and um, and even though there were times that we kind of, as you say, we graded on each other or didn't get on, it was kind of uh, all for one, which was why we called our first album that. You know, we had that that musketeers type uh, ethos. Perception becomes reality as well, right? If you're building that mythology and yeah. uh, uh, having that kind of sense of uh, a bit of sense of fear goes a long way, and also kind of uh, the mystique. It's uh, it's really cool. Um, yeah, there's, and, there's, uh, a great, there's a great movie called Ghost of the Civil Dead, which has uh, 
Nick Cave in it. it. Might be one of his only, might have been one of his first movie roles. And it's about a, a future prison, and the, one of the prison guards says, "No one will respect you unless you got your boot in their face." That was how he lived. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't there? That kind of rebel mindset, and then that comes across into your music, and that kind of can do. Being a being from Newcastle in the UK, I kind of know what that's like a little bit. Maybe uh, doing business down south, or there's that kind of reputation of the Geordies like a good night out and uh, etc so kind of playing on playing on kind of where you're from and, and that kind of uh, profile that you can have again it's a differentiator right and um, yeah. and uh, in, 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 a, in a, any crowded market it's uh, the ability to differentiate and, and stand out is really really important what would you say the hardest thing about uh, being in the screaming jets was what was that what were the if you look back on the toughest moments what, what did they look like well, I think the toughest moments come when you when you get brought back down to earth. You know, um, for us, like you know, members leaving that was always a bit of a kick in the teeth. But um, you know, we 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 had all this uh, uh, initial success, and then our second album came out, and three singles off it just did nothing. No, I think maybe even four singles off it did nothing, and record companies running around like rats on a ship, going, "What's going on? They've lost their mojo, whatever." Um, and then you really start to question yourself, like, was it just a fluke? Are we going to be destined to be one of these one-hit wonder and thrown on the heat bands? Um, and then that's when a bit of tension starts in the band. Oh, we shouldn't have gone with this song. We should have gone with that song, etc. cetera. Uh, and you start to question yourself a little bit. Um, and, and, but then obviously the, the second album ended up, um, we, we got a couple of hits, but it, it just, because it's so fickle and you're just like, oh, no, you, you, you can start questioning yourself and um, doubting yourself at the, at the slightest hurdle because a lot of people around you start uh, questioning questioning your abilities as well. Um, so that was probably the, a, a very early come back down to earth moment where you have to realise that, you know, you, it's. I guess we learned from that. That's where you've got to believe in what you're doing and, and not worry about the, the outside noise. Um, and losing members, that's the other thing. Because it, it feels really kind of, it's like a personal kind of uh, kick in the teeth to you that someone doesn't want to be in the band with you anymore, that they feel like um, they, they've, they've got something that's going to offer them more in life, etc. cetera. Um, so they were, I mean, uh, for the first um, at 2001 was the first time we had a real break. You know, we had a, we had a couple of weeks here and there, um, but we started in 89 and 2001. By that stage, there'd been divorces, marriages, births, etc. And and so up until then, you don't even really think about it. You kind of just keep rolling. Drummer's gone. Oh, let, let's get a new drummer. Um, he didn't work out. Now we've got to fly somewhere overseas to uh, to to fill in and, and learn all the chops for the next eight weeks. Then we get home and then our guitarist said he doesn't want to be in the band anymore. And you start to think, oh, no, is this it? Um, but we, we made it through to 2001 and then we had to have a break. It was like an indefinite hiatus. Um, and I think that's when you kind of, that was the first time we all sat around on our own, collected our thoughts and went, oh, right, um, this really... You know what does this really mean to uh, to the to each of us? So, yeah, we had a couple of years off in two thousand four. We started up again. And through those that time where you you're coming out of such 
high intensity as a, it's like you say, you're being in the gang, you're being out in front of thousands of people on a weekly basis. And it's not the life that everybody lives, right? So it's not like you're uh, you're coming out of a, an office job and you're going back into one in a few years' time or something a little bit more um, mundane. It's a, it's a kind of that real highs, highs and lows of it. And um, how did you feel through that time? How did you how did you manage yourself? Because it must have been quite confronting to go from uh, everything all at once to uh, to uh, to a lot less happening, I guess. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, it only took me a week before I needed to go and uh, see uh, a psychologist, uh, just because it, it, I had no idea I was going to be as shattered as I was, um, and that was our own decision to to go off the road. But he said, "Go back and do some roofing." <laughs> so I, I went and I did some uh, plumbing and roofing. Um, but at, uh, flashing forward to twenty twenty, that was the hardest time because in in 2001, it was our decision uh, to take a bit of time off. So you kind of you, you take with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, but in when the COVID thing hit, and we were told that's it, you can't perform, you can't, um, you, you you can't get in front of people. Uh, man, that was that was the hardest time, and uh, I spent a lot of nights just lying in bed thinking, what the hell's going to happen here? I don't know what's going to happen, and. That's where you realise that kind of um, it's it's a drug that adulation that people yelling and screaming your name and wanting to hear another song and um, I, I, look I, I, I still maintain it's the only job in the world where every three minutes or four minutes people go wild and clap and go yeah you're amazing <laughs> do something else um, yeah there's just no other job like it and um, so yeah that was I, I think that was the hardest and and it kind of didn't hit me back in in 2001 because as i say it was a personal decision for us all to take some time but being um being absolutely sidelined and uh, you know i can understand how footy players who are out for a whole season feel when they're just sitting there on the sideline there's nothing they can do no one's going yay or anything like that it's uh and and their, their whole life is consumed by rehabilitation so they can get back out there and do that thing that they love so much so yeah, it's a it's it's a, a fairly unique um, situation to be in to uh, to get addicted to that um, that love coming back at you from out of the crowd. Yeah, wow, it must be uh, it must be so addictive, and especially when you're uh, singing your own tunes and you've seen that kind of uh, that 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 emotional connection that you've had with the song that then you give out to other people, and then they they bring that back, and it's just that constant positive feedback loop. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I looked uh, a, a brilliant man, Bernard Fanning from Powderfinger. Yeah, he was actually talking to because oh, I interview people on my show, and he was talking to me about music. And he said the magic is before you start to write that song, there's nothing there. There's no there's chords, yes, there's notes, but they're not in the right order. There's words, but you haven't put them into meaningful kind of things he said and at the end of it you come out with a song and then that's the first part of the magic and then the, the, the magic is you put that song out to people and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people connect with something that you just made up out of thin air and I was like wow that is that is something that, that kind of I guess that's why the connection is so strong when it gets made and as you say not every song's a hit 
Not every song works. Not every song hits the target. But when it does, uh, it really kind of uh, it, it, it. It's like an affirmation. You kind of uh, it says, "Yeah, what you're doing's right." You you actually, you know, when you're a musician or an entertainer, you want to connect with people. And when those people say, "Yeah, you've connected," it really kind of hits you right in the uh, in the being. Yeah, and nice. that 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 must be really special to do that. And uh, and do that consistently, like you say. That that that's art, right? That that is the mm. it is the art form of of music, and uh, and 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 why it captivates people all around the world, uh, all different types of music. And just would love to hear your thoughts on the music industry today. Obviously, um, in your heyday, it was, a, it was a big heyday for Australian music, right? So you'd have been surrounded by um, some of the biggest stars. Um, of the Australian music scene, um, how do you how do you see the way music is today in terms of what's happening with Spotify, the digitization of music, the uh, um, the way that now the, the the music charts run? I'd love to hear your views on that. Well, look, uh, uh, musicians certainly have a much uh, easier uh, platform to get their music out on. You don't have to go through record companies or. I uh, don't have to be scouted or found in a in a dingy little pub. Uh, you can get your music to the masses immediately. That's the upside. The downsides are many. Um, it, it's hard to like. The more you play, the better you get. That's all what I've always said. So when I meet young bands, I say rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Don't take it out. Don't take the car out of the shed till you've got it totally buffed. And obviously, there's going to be things that you've got to work on once once you're out there on the road once you're out there performing um but um yeah the more you play the, the better you get and that's the opportunity that people don't have so much anymore because there's not as many venues i mean uh, wednesday night we used to start the week um in in rock as far as australia was concerned you can go and see a local bar, uh, band at the local pub on a wednesday night and a Thursday night, and then the bigger bands Friday, Saturday. So there was it was a, a real scene that kept, you know, you only had Monday and Tuesday to wash your clothes, and we never washed our clothes. We just were like, let's get through and, you know, maybe rehearse on a Tuesday afternoon and then do it all again. So that's the thing that uh, young uh, artists are missing out on. I don't think they're getting paid uh, what they're worth from streaming services. I mean... It works out a million a million streams uh, gets you um, seven thousand dollars or something from Spotify. That's just in their wisdom they've come up with an arbitrary kind of pay pay through. Uh, back in the day, a million plays would get you some hefty change. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and 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 the other thing is you might get a million streams, but you don't necessarily know they're not all necessarily coming from the same place so it's not like you can pinpoint a place and say right we'll tour them there because we're streaming a lot from that area whereas we used to be able to um you know we'd we'd say oh um the carrying bar it works well for us in sydney let's book gigs there and you know you'd be able to grow it a little bit more organically Ooh. whereas now you can become an overnight sensation and uh and a million people want to see you, or a billion people want to see you. But if you've only got one one song and no stage act or no presence or whatever, you're going to kind of get found wanting in uh, in those bigger arenas. 
just around the corner from me, that the Curring Barring, when I was speaking to you from uh, Cronulla. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> In the Shire. Beautiful. Yeah. Down here. And what would be your advice to a young band today, a group of guys and girls got together, they're starting to play a bit of music in their garage, um, and they've got high hopes for the future. What would be your, what would be the pearls of wisdom that you'd give to young musicians? Yeah, well, as I said, the rehearsal things are important because you, that's where you make your uh, your personal connections with the other guys in the band or, or girls in the band as well, um, and that's where you see you know strengths and weaknesses, and you know going back to the gang or the the, the footy team. Thing you you want to know who's um, who's going to be able to uh, you know carry you through in times where things are a bit light on stage. Like you want to throw over to old mate who's hell on the guitar because your your voice might be a bit funny. Oh, extended lead break over here. Um, yeah, so I mean I think that the rehearsal and spending a lot of time together. We we made posters together. We made t-shirts together. We. Uh, it was a, a very hands-on industry, which I, I guess it's not so much anymore. But you can still, you can still create, uh, come up with creative ideas together. Um, yeah, I, I just think um, uh, there's what's it? There's there's no bad ideas except the really bad ones. Right? Um, there's some things that you just go, no, we're not doing that. We're not wearing velvet pants. Um, but uh, there, you know, you got to kind of take stuff on board and. It, the, the main thing you have to learn, I think, is give and take with uh, with the other members, especially, you know, we've always tried to make uh, the Jets like a, a five-way operation. There's no real kind of upper or lower echelons in the band. Everyone gets a say. Um, yeah, it's but the hard part is uh, there's no real kind of, uh, no real, it's, I remember when I was learning rugby league, there was a how to play rugby league book. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. This is That's how you play the ball, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's in rock and roll, and, and they, I've, they've said it, I've heard it said before, if uh, if there was a formula and if there was a way to say this is how you do it, then Stock Aitken and Waterman would still be having hits, right, because they, yeah. they wrote the book. But uh, it all changes a lot, and I think it all comes down to, the personal relationships that you kind of make within your within your group, um, and be wary of managers. <laughs> a lot of them, a, a lot of them don't know what they're doing. And um, uh, our our first manager, not to cast too many aspersions, but he was <laughs> a, he was having a great time, just like we were, and. Uh, I think if you look around and your manager's having as much fun as you are, you might need to, to reassess that situation. <laughs> well, there's some fairly, fairly sage advice there. I mean, what you're talking about if uh, from a band perspective, that, that can be really transported across industries, you know, like uh, having that kind of that tight crew. Um, we see a lot of it in our, in our industry and technology is that you've got to work together as a team. There's so many different you know, whilst you've got instruments and different teams across businesses, they've got different skills, they've got different needs, and uh, and I think it's a it's really solid advice. And you can tell it comes again back from that kind of that youthful view of playing rugby league and playing sport. The way I speak to a lot of sports people, that camaraderie, willingness to learn, coming in with that fearless element, respecting your teammates, listening to your teammates, having a voice—all of those things are just like they're helpful and and kind of. Good playbooks for society, right? Not just 
not just bands or sports teams or businesses. And I think if we're, we're coming out of COVID, there is that real sense of um, we want to get that community back. I must admit, I'm loving living down in the Shire because it's got a real sense of community. It's got a drive. It's got an ambition. I was come from the east of Sydney, which from lockdown, and um, it's just a different sense down here. And I often think it's because of that that sense of camaraderie and community and mateship that is just ingrained into into places. And you just pick up and roll with it, you know, and, you, and before you know it, you're, uh, you're there. And it's like going in to work for any good business or any good team. Uh, they welcome you with open arms and you become part of their, uh, their part of their, part of the, the overall being. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a nice place to be. It's, uh, I, I mean, that's why I'm, I, I, I look at, I know heaps of footy players and sportsmen and I look at them, I go, imagine being told at 33, 34, even younger, that's it. You can't hang out with the group anymore. I'm, I just, and, and we've been, uh, to be in a band for 30 plus years or in a couple of different bands and to be in the music scene, you don't get told, right, your time's out. Well, you do, that <laughs> you get told that when no one buys tickets to your concert. But uh, it's not like you get a tap on the shoulder from someone at, at, at a certain age and told, right, you can't hang around the band anymore. Uh, you can't hang around this scene anymore unless you find a periphery job. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite free to keep screaming your head off until such time as uh, I can't anymore. So I, uh, I, I see those guys and the transition that they have to make. It's, uh, it's almost like uh, transitioning out of the military. Obviously, not without the horrors of, of the theatre of war, but um, being, you know, being thrust then into, oh, go and find a job somewhere else. That oh, I, I really do not envy those guys. I feel very. Uh, strongly that they need a lot more support than they get just because it, it must just like you, if if you if you play football from from your, the first time you can seven years old 25 years later you get told you can't do that anymore must be just devastating yeah there's a lot of uh, there's, a, there's a lot to be said about um industries finding the right pathways for the people that come out of those years mm. um by design things like the army uh, there's some great businesses out there called like With You With Me, which helps people from the army get back in, get into uh, get into more civilian uh, life and work. Um, and I've worked with some fantastic people who come out of the military. Um, and likewise with sport, that you're driven so hard to keep that mentality, keep that motivation up, and then all of but you're doing it for a purpose. You're doing it for 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 80 minutes on a uh, on on a on a on a Friday night or something, and all of a sudden that. That Friday night's not there anymore. The Friday night's not there, but the footy isn't. Um, and it's uh, again comes back to that uh, that responsibility. I think that is there's so much focus on the on the on the on the on the pre-fame and then the maintenance of that, but there's not a lot on the other side of that. And uh, and because there's a society, we're waiting for the for the new three guys to come up and then supporting them, right? Because that's what's yeah, in the spotlight. That's right, and, and look, um, don't get me wrong. There, there. Um, I guess our kind of parallel in our industry would be when you bring out new singles and radio goes, "Huh, like your old singles better," <laughs> you know. Um, and you just got to kind of bite the bullet, even though we think that we're making music as good as we've ever made. Um, you know, if they get a little bit ageist at uh, at radio stations, I. Mean, and and you know they can just your relevance can uh, can drop down, 
Um, and that's why for us, the, the lucky part is we have the, the crowd loyalty that we built up early on in our careers, supporting bands like the Divinals and the Angels and Choir Boys and Radiators. Um, the loyalty that we have from those crowds means that even though our albums don't necessarily chart in the top 10, um, we still play to 600, 800, 1,000 people every night uh, because our you know reputation for live precedes us. And people have that nostalgia thing as well, but we're getting a lot of young people along to the shows nowadays. So, yeah, it's, uh, you, uh, once again, we've at least got that outlet that we can uh, continue to roll on. Yes, it's uh, and it's so important, right? That's to say, the rolling on and uh, in, in keeping doing it for everyone's uh, for for the joy of joy of the fans and for the, for the health of you guys as well. It's a, it's a win win. It is indeed. Dave, I'll just finish up the here. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and thank you for taking the time. Um, I'll ask you the question that I close with on the show for everybody uh, that we speak to. How would Dave Gleason define resilience? Oh, look, it's it's one of those things you just got to drag yourself up by your bootstraps sometimes. Um, um, asking for help is... Uh, was, was something that I found down in the COVID thing as far as, uh, you know, sometimes as, as resilient as you think you are, um, there are times where you kind of, you are lost for answers. You're lost for for any type of, um, you know, way out. Um, but the resilience is relying on yourself and knowing that you've got, You've got the tools. Um, that's how, I mean, like I'm 54. If I didn't have the tools, I, you know, <laughs> by now, then I'm in all sorts of trouble. So knowing <laughs> that the tools are there uh, is a big thing. But then uh, as sometimes they get buried. Sometimes you can't find them. But, um, yeah, I, look, for me, resilience is just – there's a, a great line in a Jackson Brown song, and it says um, – and this is what I, if I'm, I'm six shows uh, in to a, you know, six out of six shows out of eight days, I just go, and you get up and do it again. Amen. That's, <laughs> I love that. That, uh, that might, that, that sounds to me like something that you'd, uh, that you'd put on a very large billboard. Just, just to remind everybody he keep on going. Yeah, that's right. Dave, thank you very much for joining us today on the Bill and Resilience podcast. It's been a pleasure to uh, meet you, understand more about yourself, and I'm sure there's a huge amount of takeaways for the listeners as there has been for myself uh, having the conversation. Um, thank you very much. Just to finish, where can people find more info about Dave Gleason and um, the Screaming Jets? Well, we, uh, I have my own Facebook and Instagram, um, just davegleason.com and um, and the Screaming Jets, uh, the screaminjets.com.au everything you need to know about uh, where we are and what we're doing. Got a new album coming out later this year, so fingers crossed we'll, uh, we might get a bit of airplay again. Oh, nice. Well, I really hope you do. Cheers, Noel. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. I really want to thank today's guest, Dave Gleason. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo, plus tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. Afternoon Sport. 
Are you thinking about making a podcast? If so, contact the Afternoon Sport Group. We'll make it easy. With the technical know-how and industry knowledge, we'll get your podcast up and running in no time. Get in touch via our website or email hello at afternoonsport.com.